we are about to chat about medical abuse of power. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and today we are talking with my friend Michelle about this concept of abuse of power in the medical system. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I've been trying to get you on here for a while, so I just had to, I guess, trick you. Now we're going to talk about something totally different. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, I have a really serious question for you. What is your favorite thing to get at Starbucks? Oh, Starbucks. Okay. So I am not your typical coffee girl, but I do love me some kids chocolate milk with a chocolate cake pop. What? (laughs) That is absolutely epic. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Starbucks switched to their Christmas items today. Yes. Cause I saw a really cool cup. Did you see their Christmas cake pop? No. What flavor? It's a brownie cake pop. Oh my goodness. I'm going there tomorrow. Okay, so Michelle, we've been talking about the abuse of power for a few months now and how families have been harmed by systems abusing their power in unethical ways. And the more that we've been delving into some of these medical situations, the scarier it has gotten. So we wanted to take some time and address these medical abuses of power directly. And I thought you would be the perfect person to talk to about this. And I guess we'll find that out in a little bit here. The first thing I wanted to do was kind of define what we're talking about. A medical abuse of power versus these other abuses of power obviously is taking place within the medical system, whether that's with a doctor or hospital. So we're talking about the medical system using its powers and influence to control patients and families by limiting parental medical power and at times by removing children from their parents based on their subjective opinions about treatment and diagnosis. So I want to start off with making it very clear that I am in no way excusing medical child abuse. I think that it's very important that we stay on top of any time where we think that abuse might be happening in a home. I don't think we need to go backwards and not be protecting children. I'm just acknowledging that there is some times where a false claim ends up with a situation where there might be an abuse of power when handled unethically. And that's what we want to talk about because we've been hearing about a lot of these lately and it's terrifying. Agreed. hundred percent. I would love to share why I asked for you to join us for this one. So can you give my friends a brief overview of your experience in the medical field? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I have worked in the 
field of pediatrics as both a nurse and a nurse practitioner for roughly the past 20 years. Um, I've worked in various settings. I've worked at the local children's hospital. I've worked in the pediatric primary care office. And I've also assisted with um, some abuse and neglect exams. As we're having these conversations about abuses of power, and a lot of them that we've been talking about lately seem to be coming from the medical system. And due to your experience, you're usually my go-to. And I call you and I'm like, hey, dude, like this is effed up, right? Or am I missing something? We've actually had a lot of great talks and I've learned a lot because sometimes there's a perspective that I'm not considering. But in some of these instances, what is going on in certain spaces in the medical system is just not okay, right? A hundred percent agree with you. It's it's really, really scary and it's unfair to these families and, and the children involved. Yeah. And I think it also minimizes the real cases, you know, from your experience and from my experience, there are so many kids that actually do need protection that when you've got all these situations of, you know, manipulation or people actually lying or exaggerating things in ways that end up hurting families, it kind of makes you not trust it as much. And and there are legitimate situations where it needs to be trusted. I absolutely think when someone has a suspicion of child abuse, they need to call it in. These are things that have to happen in order to keep the kids safe that need to be kept safe when the medical system is making subjective calls and playing both accuser and investigator like we're seeing in some of these situations and making all the recommendations to DCF. That's where we're crossing lines and blurring the boundaries that are there for a reason. Michelle, can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be a nurse and have to decide whether to make that abuse call or not? I would have to say um, making that call for me is often pretty challenging because I don't want to report concerns in a biased fashion. I want to be sure that I'm seeing this picture clearly when I see this child. And I oftentimes will collaborate with another provider, nurse, tech, and kind of talk to them and see if they also notice the same concerns that I have regarding the potential abuse or neglect with this child and or their family members. And unfortunately, you know, as a nurse, you are a mandatory reporter. And I therefore have the legal and moral obligation to report any of these concerns that I have. And if I don't report them, then I can face significant consequences that include fines, penalties, disciplinary action. And more importantly, regarding the child, if I fail to report the concerns that I have for suspected abuse or neglect, then I could potentially be leaving this child subjected to further abuse and or neglect. Then this child and or the family members are not able to receive the services, support, care that they need to stay safe and well. So it, it is a huge responsibility to take on. When you're working in a hospital, I feel like, and I could totally be wrong because I've never worked in a hospital. I just watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy, but I feel like there's going to be a higher density of cases that come in in a hospital versus maybe if you're working with a primary care provider or something like that. And also probably a larger variety of people. Whereas if you're at the primary 
care provider, you probably have a set number of patients and you might see them fairly regularly, whereas in the hospital, it's probably a little bit more variant. Is that accurate? A hundred percent in a pediatric primary care office, you know, your patients, you're, you have a closer relationship with them. So if they're having an off day, a bad day, they don't have an answer that's coming to them as quickly as I would like, because, you know, they didn't sleep all night or whatever. They just lost a relative. I know their baseline. Whereas in the hospital, you really don't know how the family normally interacts per se or responds to your questions and answers, nor if their child seeks routine medical care because you're not seeing them on a routine basis. Yeah. And also there's the whole other aspect of the environment of a hospital is sometimes terrifying because often when you're going to the hospital, it's for something urgent or an emergency. And just the environment itself, like you you walk into your primary care provider's office, you know, you got smiling faces. Everybody's kind of, you know, depending on the office, like relaxed and you sit in the waiting room and you go visit someone. And when you're in a hospital, things are a lot more hectic. And I think a lot of people have fears of hospitals, certainly myself to some extent. I know that my heart rate probably goes up and, you know, you're seeing someone in an environment that's much more different from their normal surroundings. So they might act a little differently as well. So I think there's so many factors there. I would imagine that that's probably a place where there, where more concerns would come up. Right. And the unknown, the stressors, you know, of even just being there. Now, when you have made an abuse call, I'm only asking you this because in a lot of these cases that we've been hearing about, like Melissa Bray and Maya Kowalski and some of these others, it seems to be the case. But do you think it would be appropriate if you were a nurse on staff in a hospital and you called in a report, but then you also were part of an investigation? Do you think that one person should play more than one role in a situation like this? No, I don't. I I think there's just too much at risk on both parties' sides, the families and the providers or, you know, CPTs think it needs to be um, somebody outside. Yeah, like a third party. So it seems like when an abuse call is made that is medical related, you know, in these situations where you've got physical abuse, sexual abuse or medical child abuse, including fictitious disorder and some of these others generally the abuse call is made. And instead of just going to the CPI, it is also going to CPT. And CPT is a group of medical professionals, right? Oftentimes they do have um, a therapist on staff. They have case coordinator that coordinates their own investigation. And then there is a medical provider, whether it be a nurse practitioner or a pediatric physician, which is often the medical director for that CPT area. So you've got those people who are going to make their findings based on physical exams and I believe conversations and investigations or are there other things involved? So generally it is based off of an interview with the child, a potential interview with the parent, depending on the age, a physical exam and a collection of medical records that are pertinent to the concern. And so then they would send their recommendation, I'm assuming over to CPI and CPI would take that and their investigation and go to the judge with a determination on how they feel like they need to proceed. You would think with all these different parties that there would be a little bit of checks and balances. But if it works anything like some of the other things I've seen, there's always a room for a little bit of abuse of power. 
So we're going to have a little bit of story time about something that happened with one of my children. This happened a little over a year ago and really has very drastically affected me. And the trauma that I experienced from it has changed my perspective on a lot of things. And I'm honestly still working through some of the anxiety and all of that that it has created in me. The funny thing about when you go through an experience like that is you think you're good and then it pops up and bites you when you're not looking. When this happened, my focus was my child. I just put everything into making things okay for that child. Once things were okay, I I was like, okay, we're good. And, you know, everybody moved on. And here we are about a year later and I'm like, he was good, (laughs) but I wasn't good. One of the things that this has brought this up to me is this trial with Maya Kowalski and I'm very invested in it and I'm watching the trial streams and just feel very strongly about what has gone on. One of my kids asked me why I was worried about, you know, this family. When I started to answer, it started to feed into, you know, what had happened a year ago. And that's when I realized that the reason I am spiraling over Maya is because of my experience. So I am working on that and doing all the things. I wanted to share this with you because I know that you know I've been obsessing a little bit over the Maya trial. And I've started to tell you this story a couple of times, but we keep running out of time. What better way to share the story with you than with a thousand of our closest friends, right? Go for it. All right. A little over a year ago, uh, one of my children's doctors changed one of their medicines. I will tell you that before the pharmacy filled it, I just had a weird feeling in my gut about it. I was Googling, which you shouldn't do, but... Everything that I read, everything that anybody told me was that basically this medicine was like any other ADHD med that my kid has already been on. And it really wasn't a big deal, but I just had a weird feeling in my gut about it. I even double checked with the doctor who prescribed it and was like, are you sure? You know, was reassured about it. I just had a sinking feeling about it, even though something inside of me was screaming not to give it. I followed the doctor's recommendations and I filled the prescription and I decided to start him on this med on a Saturday morning because we would all be home. When I gave him the med and the world didn't explode, I went on with my day thinking that everything was fine. I went to the grocery store and while I was on the way home from the grocery store, both my husband, Jack Daddy, and this child both sent me messages that basically the the child was saying that Jack Daddy wasn't being fair. Jack Daddy was saying the child was being too rough with the siblings. And when he fussed at him to stop being too rough, started screaming at him. So I hurried home. Everybody was kind of upset. So we all sat down and talked and the child actually like started crying when we were talking, which was odd and should have been a bigger red flag and ended up hugging both of us and going to their room. Then I just thought everything was okay until it wasn't. Anyways, it became urgent and the child expressed to me that they did want to hurt themselves in a pretty severe way. I scooped child up, held child in my arms and called the pediatrician. The pediatrician immediately called me back and we talked about you know, how to handle this. I'm a foster mom, definitely been through this before, but this was a little bit different. We also both immediately recognized the pediatrician and myself that this was because of the meds, because this was not something that the child 
had really ever struggled with. We were trying to figure out the best way to handle it. Um, she called a couple places and ended up telling me to check into the ER because the places that she would recommend weren't taking patients at that time. So we drove an hour down to Tampa and hit the children's hospital. And uh, we got checked in and that whole period was a little bit of a blur. At some point, they moved us from the waiting room to uh, uh, triage. Uh, triage, yes. They bring us into triage. They end up bringing us to a room in the ER. We're in a room in the ER for a while. But the next thing that happened was kind of weird, but I don't think it was appropriate. They brought us to the adult psych department. Um, even though we had come to the children's hospital, they brought us to the adult psych department where we walked in and they locked the door behind us. And it was rooms all around with adults in them. They put us into a room and it was literally one of the scariest experiences of my life. Thank the Lord they let me stay with him in the room because I understand that that is not always the case in an experience like this where your child is being Baker acted, but they also should not be putting a child into an adult psych department. I remember there was a woman who kept ripping her clothes off and running through the halls. She kept running around naked and screaming and people would come around her and bring her back to her room. And then there was a man who kept running out and screaming and banging on everybody's doors and making really scary faces. And I think tried to assault a nurse one time in the middle of the night. They had to like bring security in. I literally saw him like try and throw hands at the women who were at the nurse's station. It was just terrifying. Like all night long, there were people screaming and making scary noises and banging on our door, banging on the walls. Uh, my child was terrified. It was a horrendous experience. The other thing is, yeah, they let me stay in there, but they like you. I guess you can't have anything in the room. So forget like an extra recliner. There was no chair. I slept on the floor and they wouldn't even give me a blanket. So my child gave me like, I think one of his sheets or something. And I kind of like wrapped a little bit under my head. And like, I don't know if I had a sweater or a bag that I like put on my body. Not that we really slept with all the screaming and banging going on. It, it was terrifying. And uh, the whole time we were there, I kept asking, my child, do you still feel like that? Do you still have those feelings? And the entire first day, yes, yes, I still feel that way. I'm sorry. Yes, I feel that way. Around, I want to say 3 a.m. the next morning, we were awake because everybody was screaming and yelling and banging at our door and walls. I think it was around 3 a.m. And that time when I asked, my child said no, that they didn't feel that way at all anymore and never did. And we're a year later and still has not had that feeling. And from what I researched on that medicine that was appropriate um that the med would wear off by the next morning and it kind of made sense that he didn't feel that way anymore that's terrifying all of it, it. i it I is terrifying couldn't even imagine being in that situation with my child it, it was pretty scary you know and i hope yeah. that me being there made it a little less scary for him i did try and put my body against the door so he couldn't see the naked people out there and that didn't make him laugh a little bit but it was i just i don't understand why they would put a child in a floor where people are acting that way or even just with adults and at a certain point when it became when it started to feel dangerous and super inappropriate, I did go out to the nurse's station multiple times and tell them like, is there someone I can talk to? Like, this is not where my kids should be. Like, 
you can't have these people banging on our doors scared like like why why are we in this situation they told me multiple times we know we know this is bad like trust me like i'm so sorry this happened you know if i wasn't in as much shock i would have advocated more to like speak to someone higher up and be like you've got to get us out of here this is ridiculous yeah i i think there has to have been a better option for for you and your child during that time and I, I don't think it's too late to still advocate on on your child's behalf at this point. We'll get to the end because this is like the minor part. All along when all of this stuff was happening, I was like, oh, I'm going to write such a good letter. I am going to rip them up. I am so mad. How could they let this happen? They can't let this happen to other people. But I think at the end of this, we were all so traumatized. We wanted to pretend it didn't happen. And, and I think that's what happens a lot of the times when people are in these situations. They just want to walk away and pretend it didn't happen. I don't remember exactly how long we were there. Almost think it was another night, but I'm not 100%. Time passes weird when you're in a room without windows, right? Um, but I feel like by the time the next thing happened, I was thinking they're just going to let us go home now because it's been like a whole day where he's back to himself. This was clearly related to the medicine. We're fine now. Like we should be able to go. We've been here almost as long as a Baker Act should be lasting. Like I've had foster kids go to Baker Act and come home in less time. I kept asking, like, can we talk to a doctor or whoever makes those decisions so I can explain like that this was medicine based and you know if they could talk to him and see that he's okay then we could just go home and again I wish I had pushed harder on that but also I was just trying to follow doctor's orders right and do it safe they had been telling me yeah you're probably gonna just be able to go from here to home because you've been here for so long and none of the facilities have any openings multiple people had told me that So my expectation was I was just sitting around waiting for a doctor to come and talk to him and then probably release us to go home. Obviously, make sure that we're following up with his doctor about meds, his therapist, getting everything lined up. The next thing that I know, this man comes in. I don't know what his role was. I don't know if he was a nurse. He wasn't a doctor. He came in and he's like, oh, I need you to sign some papers. We're going to take him over to the behavioral center. And I said, I thought that we had talked about that he might not have to go to a center since we've already been here for almost the amount of time of a Baker Act. And he's fine. This man was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not happening. You're going to the center. I don't remember the entire conversation that we had, but I remember just feeling shocked because I was not expecting this. And it was just suddenly happening very quickly. And I feel like it was mere moments. And all of a sudden they had walked us out. They put him in this van and he's being driven away. The next morning, I got a call from the doctor at this behavioral center, and he started off the phone call by throwing out a couple of big diagnoses that were completely irrelevant to my son. And when I objected, said, this isn't your biological son. You don't even know what what is in his genetics. And so right away kind of threw me off. I'm trying to be polite and reasonable. And so the doctor starts to tell me his plan, which includes putting him back on the med that brought us to the situation. No. Right. 
And when he said that, I immediately was like, absolutely not. We are never taking that med again. And he said, well, maybe he just wasn't on high enough of a dose. And I said, absolutely not. I was like, listen, if we think that meds need to be involved, I'm open to it. But I am never, ever, ever putting that in my child again. Doctor argued with me and then told me that we were going to add probably the most extreme med that I could think of. And immediately I was like, honestly, I don't want him on any meds. The only reason he's on meds is for ADHD. And I will take ADHD any day over what we experienced yesterday. I would like for him to be off meds. And I definitely do not agree to these two meds. The doctor said to me, if you don't agree to these meds, I guess I'm just going to have to keep them here for at least six months. Six months. Six months. I've never heard of something like that. Bit extreme. (laughs) Right. I said, listen, I'm willing to have a conversation here about what is best for my child, but I'm absolutely not ever going to let him go on the meds that he took yesterday. And honestly, I would like him to be on less meds, not more meds. I do not think this other med is necessary. And he said, well, if you don't at least agree to this med, which not the one that he had taken the previous day, but in my opinion, something much stronger and more significant. He said, if you don't agree to this, he's going to be here a really long time. So I felt incredibly bullied. I was like, I need my kid back. (laughs) Right. So I did agree to that other med that I would not have liked him to be on that. I think they were just trying to make him super docile and be asleep the whole time he was there. Went to visit child started to hear really scary stories about how the other kids there have all been there for weeks, most of the months, and that they were all just there for a Baker Act. That was a little concerning because in all of my experience of having kids be Baker Acted, it's generally, you know, sometimes it's two or three days, sometimes it's more. And what I was being told is that Every kid that was there with him had been there for multiple weeks and a lot of them had been there for months, which was scary to me, especially when just that morning the doctor had threatened me to keep my child for six months if I didn't agree to put him on these very strong antipsychotics that I know my child didn't need. That was concerning. And, you know, I kept asking, you know, when can he come home? He hasn't had these feelings since the very first day. The meds have worn off. Like, why is he not home? So they were telling me that the time clock had to restart when we switched hospitals. They just wanted to make sure that his meds were good. And my thought the whole time, especially after speaking with the pediatrician, is I want him off all meds over the way that those meds made him feel. The pediatrician agreed. She was absolutely in agreement that my kid did not need to be on these meds. I'm very thankful that I have a good relationship with my kid's primary care provider because she was a great support through this experience. I guess it was like the third day or the fourth day at this point um, when they weren't letting him come home. She even faxed over a letter to the facility asking for him to be released. And she told me that there was actually a law that if a child is a minor, the parent has the right to take them out. But she also also sent a letter, faxed a letter over to the behavioral center saying, this is my patient. He will be under my care as soon as he's out. We're going to bring him into the office as soon as he leaves there. But this mom has a right to bring her child out, especially with the amount of time he's already been in. You know, he will be in my care. When I called them and asked if they got it, they said, yep, but that doesn't matter to us. Um, Yeah, it just kept going. And the stories that I heard every day when I went to visit him got scarier and scarier because they told me, I think on his second day there, maybe because I'm asking, like, why can't he come home yet? Like, when is he coming home? They said, oh, he got into a fight with another kid. So we're going to go ahead and keep him until next week. 
my child doesn't fight with other kids. And now they've got them on a medicine that makes you just fall asleep. My kid who has, I don't think ever been in a physical fight in his life is now on sleeping meds. And you're telling me you got in a fight with kid after they told me that. And I went for a visit. I asked about the fight and he looked bewildered and he was like, are you kidding? I can't even move on the couch without them threatening to add more time. All of the kids in my group, they have to sit in this common area and there's a couple couches we have to sit and if we move too much they threaten to shoot us with booty juice if we fidget or stand up this is like seeming out of a horror film right yes but i'm looking at these other kids and i am absolutely believing it because they're all like you know they come out during visitation time they all look like super dosed one child in particular stood out to me because he was clearly on the autism spectrum. I mentioned to my child one day that I was like, I bet that kid has a hard time in here and it makes me feel sad that he's not with his parent. My child told me, oh, he's asleep all the time in here anyways. They keep him dosed up. Yeah, they keep him dosed up constantly. He's like, because he can't sit still. So he's constantly moving his body and they take him to his room all the time and shoot him in the butt with the needle and he falls asleep. I don't even know what the laws are about Baker acting a kid with autism, but this child, uh, he told me he had been there over a month that all the kids there would ask to go home all the time. And they would be like, well, you're not behaving, so you can't go home. Even so much as like like if they were eating and they didn't want to finish like their vegetables or something, that they would be threatened to have more time added. He's like the other boys, when they think they're going home, they'll be told that they got added another week because they did something wrong. But he's like, but we all sit there and stare at each other all day and nobody's doing anything wrong. So he was terrified the whole time he was there. And the fact that they kept adding time onto me and they made up a story about him fighting with someone to add a week. So I came back the next day and I was like, his time is up. Even if you restarted the clock, the time is all over and up. I agreed to the meds that I didn't want to agree with. You have a note from my pediatrician. At this point, it's illegal for you to keep him. And so they said, oh no, we already went to court and asked for an extension for him. So we have all the paperwork and it's legal for us to keep him as long as we want at this point. So they told me they were keeping him another week. So I went out to my car before I hit someone. Basically called anybody that I thought might have any idea on what to do. I was terrified. I felt crazy and I felt like the thing that I couldn't understand is why I didn't have any power over the medical decisions of my child. I think that's what effed me up. Ever since then, I have this fear because of that, that these people can just make a decision and take away my parental consent. He threatened to keep my child for six months if I didn't let him put my son on this med that I absolutely did not agree to. How is that acceptable though? I don't, I don't understand how that's acceptable from a medical standpoint. I agree. Like I could look at what my child told me and be like, oh, like, you know, he totally was making this up or exaggerating this. But from the experience that I personally had, I believe everything that he said. I believe I, I had a doctor threaten to take my son for six months if I didn't agree. So because I had that experience with that doctor who threatened to keep my child for six months if I didn't agree to these meds. And because when I went in and because they told me that he got into a fight when I know for a fact that my kid doesn't get into fights, let alone in a situation like that. And because every time I talk to them, they seem to be like manipulating words to try and coerce me into feeling a certain type of way. And it was fucked up, man. I I remember thinking like why I don't understand why they get to decide 
all these things for my child. And so because of that, when I hear about these stories like Maya, like Melissa Bright, like Bold Fam, it's terrifying because I remember feeling that for less than two weeks and it was the scariest time in my life. And a year later, I'm still messed up over it. Um, And so when you think about what Beata Kowalski, Maya's mom, felt after three months of not being able to see her child, especially as a nurse, you can probably relate as a nurse. If someone were to take your ability away to make medical decisions for your child, that's got to be way more amplified than even how I felt, because I don't know a lot of medical things, you know, other than my medical degree that I got on Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) We got to a point where I like I walked out because I didn't want to hurt someone, (laughs) but I walked back in. I sat in my car for a little bit and I walked back in and I told them I have my child's therapist ready to see him the minute he walks out of here. I have my child's doctor ready to see him the minute he gets out of here. We have a plan. He has been here long enough. You have a letter from my physician and I have a right to my child. And if you don't bring him out right now, I am not only going to sue you, I'm going to come here and tell every other parent what you're doing. I said, I don't know why you're doing it, but I know what you're doing is not okay. (laughs) Suddenly they usher me into a room. They leave, they come back and they said, well, we just talked to the doctor and they feel like your child is ready to go. Magically. So So they packed him up and we left. And I had a plan to go back to that hospital every day at visitation time and talk to the parents and tell them to advocate to get their kids out. But I was so scared. I didn't. And I probably should have, I was going to break flyers. Okay. So that was that. And my child has been fine ever since and is completely off all meds and gets really good grades and screw them. Oh, here's the terrifying thing. Remember I told you they put in a court order to keep them for another week. When I was like, yes. you can't legally do that. Yes. Um, a couple of weeks later, I got a packet of letters in the mail. They actually put in a court order to keep him for six months. What on what grounds, though? I would love to know. He was there for a Baker Act for a way that he felt based on a medicine for one day. And they wanted to keep him for six months. It's terrifying. It's so scary sometimes to stand up to a doctor and be like, You know, I I think I know more than you about my child's medical situation, but sometimes you have to because sometimes you have doctor and listen, I don't know this doctor and I don't want to make, you know, a false quote claim on him. But the fact that he threatened to keep my kid for six months, if I didn't agree to meds, that is unethical and that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, I agree 100 percent with you. This experience has made me very, very sensitive to these abuses of power. And it's probably a big part of the reason that we're addressing them this season. But I can tell you that the feeling of not having had any control over my child's well-being was definitely the scariest time in my life. I think that there are two things at play when you've got medical abuse of power. One of them is that sometimes you've got bad actors. No matter what hospital you work at, there's probably going to be one person there who, you know, may have false motivation or whatever, where the vast majority are probably like incredibly kind and compassionate people, either unethical and dangerous people working in the system or people that are doing unethical and dangerous things. For example, the doctor that the Bold fam uh, went to who uh, called in an abuse report because he didn't like her lack of care. The doctor who changed Natalia Grace's age when he wasn't doing any of the testing that uh, would be required for an age change. Obviously, the child abuse pediatricians who went after the Bright family without considering the genetic conditions that the child had that were right in front of them. And definitely the medical teams that worked with Maya Kowalski, when you've got 
people like that. And the psychiatrist who called me and threatened to keep my son for six months if I didn't agree to meds, like these are all unethical and dangerous people who should not be making decisions for children. And I think the way that we fix that is by holding them accountable. Absolutely. If I don't agree with a provider's care, especially, I'm sorry, but in your situation, like I, I think we need to let others know to prevent this type of behavior from continuing to happen to other people and their families. So do you think the best case of action in situations like this is to go up the medical facilities chain of command or reporting to like a medical board? What do you think parents should do who go through this? I probably would go up the the command at the at the facility first. And if I didn't feel like I was heard there or if I felt like it was specifically one medical provider I wasn't happy with, I may go up the chain of command and address it with the board. There's a bit of an overweighted influence of the medical field over DCF without checks and balances. And that's scary because like there should be some type of checks and balances that we're not just using one medical provider or what have you to to change the course of something. I think what Melissa Bright did with a couple other families over in Texas is they actually were able to get legislation passed where if you have, let's say a child abuse pediatrician who calls in a report on you and then you have another doctor that has, you know, a different explanation for whatever the injury is or what have you, or perhaps there's a genetic condition or a medical condition that is found out that have caused said injury that both doctors send a report to a third party, like a medical board somewhere in Texas, something like that, where the third party decides which is more accurate and and presents that to DCF to help make those decisions. And I think that if something like that happened here in Florida as well, that we might be seeing um, less medical abuse of power. I do feel like there are issues that definitely need to be addressed. And I will agree that I think that whoever's calling in the report does not need to be the one also conducting the CBT exam. I think that needs to be two separate individuals to prevent bias. To prevent people from being Sally Smith. Thank you so much. See, this wasn't scary, right? Oh, terrifying. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, you're thank welcome. you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.